go. All right, well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Sunday School. So glad you're here. Let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the sovereign Lord over history. Jesus Christ, you are the sovereign Lord of the church. Thank you for what you have done and are doing. I pray, Lord, we'd be encouraged and uh, that we would grow in wisdom as we think about what you've done in the past and make us better equipped for how we are to act now in the present. In Jesus' name, amen. Right. Well, as we begin Sunday School today, I want you to imagine something with me. Imagine a situation in the not-so-distant future that there is a revolution in the United States. And this revolution results in the overturning of our current government and the establishment of a Christian government, a government that is overtly Christian, even conservative, evangelically Christian. What kind of society would emerge under such a government? As you are imagining this with me, let me give you some prompts. Law and society become radically reshaped by the new government. To work in government in any sort of capacity, you must be a Christian, a baptized and practicing Christian. Moreover, the nation's most prominent conservative evangelical pastors are made to form a government advisory board, even to speak with and advise the supreme leader. Other religions may be practiced in the country, but under strict limitations. They may not promote their religions or proselytize, and any persecution against conservative evangelical Christians is to be swiftly punished. Conservative evangelical churches are made exempt from property taxes, as is the case now, but other religions must pay for their buildings. And of course, government officials will determine whether a church is properly conservative evangelical. Conservative evangelicals can request government grants to build new churches or to expand churches. If the interested parties pass a doctrinal test, then the request will be granted. Pastors are also made exempt from taxes, even military service in times of war. They may also travel across the country or around the world at government expense if they are doing it for a Christian work or ministry. Commercial businesses are forbidden from being open on Sunday mornings so that everyone may participate in Christian church services. Hollywood and other entertainment and media outlets are heavily regulated so as not to promote immoral or anti-Christian content. Abortion is made totally illegal. Euthanasia and assisted suicide are outlawed. Pornography is made totally illegal. Gay marriage is abolished. Transgender surgeries are illegal. Adultery is a crime. Divorce is only legally allowed in biblically justified cases, infidelity or abandonment. Teaching about LGBT sexuality in school is illegal. Rather, the Bible and theology are required subjects in public school for study. Teaching evolution or the Big Bang Theory is illegal. Only six-day creationism is allowed. And public prayer is mandated at all schools, sporting events, and government meetings. Now, perhaps you can imagine other changes to society under an overtly Christian government. I'm just trying to give you a flavor. But considering what I just shared with you, and that's no prophecy, by the way, but considering such a situation that we could imagine 
let's ask ourselves, and this isn't to be answered out loud, this is just for you to think about, would such a transformation of society be ultimately good for the church, for the true church of Christ? Would society changing in the way that I just outlined, would that be good in the long run for the church? Would Christ's true church be blessed by these changes, or would the church actually be harmed, even cursed by these changes? As you think through that question, perhaps you are finding that answering that question is difficult. Is it good? Is it bad? And if you're finding it to be a difficult question to answer, well, I think you're thinking well. Because the truth is, as much as many of these changes would be a welcome boon to the church, they would be a great benefit to gospel work in this country and around the world. They would promote human flourishing in many ways. These changes would also introduce many new problems into our society and even the church. It would actually harm the gospel in many ways. And I can say that to you with confidence. Making our society overtly Christian under a Christian government would bring both blessing and harm. And I can say that to you with confidence because we've actually seen such a transformation take place in church history. And that's really what we're going to talk about today. Today we move into the 4th century uh, and, and... yeah, go, going through the 4th century, as we continue our series on Church History 101, the early church, this is Lesson 4, the Christian Empire. We spoke last time regarding suffering for Christ, about what persecutions the early church endured, why Christians were persecuted, and the different ways that Christians responded to persecution. Well, we're about to see that situation totally change for Christians in the Roman Empire, A dramatic transformation with the rise of a certain emperor named Constantine, also known to us today as Constantine the Great. Constantine's reign in the Roman Empire is one of the most important moments in church history and indeed of the history of Western civilization. We're going to talk this morning about Constantine's rise to power, his policies toward Christians, and the effect of those policies on Christianity, not just in his own time, but in the centuries that followed, even up to the present time. He's had a profound effect on Christianity. And we're going to start by talking about Constantine's rise to power. Let's recall the historical situation at the beginning of the 4th century, that is around A.D. 300. Christianity at this point has spread to many parts of the empire and beyond. And due to the honorable, compassionate lives of Christians, many Christians, as well as the testimonies of various martyrs, popular sentiment has begun to side with the Christians against government persecution. But Roman emperors at this point see Christians as a threat to Roman society and government. In AD 303, Emperor Diocletian and his junior emperor Galerius begin the final and most severe wave of government persecution against Christians, also known as the Great Persecution They seize Christian property, they destroy churches, they attempt to burn scriptures, they imprison Christian leaders, and when that's not enough, they later torture Christians and put them to death if these Christians will not offer sacrifices to the emperor and to the Roman gods. 
By the way, also at this time, the Roman Empire is a tetrarchy. That's what this map is. You see the four-part division there. Tetrarchy is a rule by four rulers. There's two senior emperors and two junior emperors. A senior emperor called an Augustus in the east, a senior emperor in the west, and then a junior emperor in each area serving where needed. So uh, Diocletian is the senior emperor, Galerius is his junior. Well, this is the situation. And then enter Constantine. Through a series of political maneuvers and military successes, Flavius Valerius Constantinus, known to us today simply as Constantine, becomes one of the junior emperors of the Tetrarchy. However, as he does so, the, temp- the Tetrarchy begins to fall apart. Four emperors begin to wage war against one another. And really, to see what one emperor is going to rule them all. Very hard to share power in the Roman Empire. Constantine eventually marches down with his legions from northwest Europe, which was his base, to Rome to face his main rival in the west, a man named Maxentius. Their two forces meet outside the city of Rome at a very famous battle site, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. This is 312. Constantine's forces, though just coming off a series of victories, are outnumbered two to one. But there's something different, something unique about these troops and their appearance. A special insignia appears on their shields. Does anybody know what that insignia is? Not the cross exactly. It's actually a different Christian symbol. What is it? Not the fish. No, not the dove. All right, so this is going to be new for you. It's the key row. The key row. And what is the significance of the key row? Or what is the significance of, those, of that name? Well, key and row are two letters in Greek. In fact, they are the first two letters of a certain important name. Christ. Christos in Greek. It's written key and then row. And I'll show you a picture of what the key row looks like. So it kind of looks like a P and an X. That's because the key actually is an, an X in Greek. But the P is actually the R sound in Greek. It's, it's the row. So it could have, this symbol could have been in the kind of XP version that I have there. Or it could have been the X is tilted to the side so it looks like a cross. And you've got the, the P kind of joined with it. So it looks like a, a, a cross with a, with a circle at the top. Either one of these could have been the symbol that was on the shields and on the labarum, the standard of Constantine's troops. And you can also see this symbol would continue to appear in Roman um, imperial insignias. That mosaic there is actually from the 6th century, but you can see it on the shield on the bottom left side. And that coin there on the right is actually a coin of Constantine. And there's a little key row symbol on it at the top. I don't know if you can see it from where you're sitting, but this actually becomes a symbol that Constantine continues to adopt. So these soldiers have the key row on their shields and on their standard. And what is it that caused Constantine to tell his soldiers to adopt this symbol? Magda? 
Okay, we'll, we'll talk maybe a little bit later on if we have time about um, uh, more about that idea or why did he do this. But the, the immediate cause was that Constantine supposedly had a vision. He had a vision or he had a dream in which he saw this symbol and it became important for his troops to adopt. And we actually get two different explanations of this symbol's origin from two fourth-century Christian writers, so more or less contemporaries to Constantine, Lactantius and Eusebius of Caesarea. Lactantius says that the night before the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, Constantine was directed in a dream to put on his shields, quote, the letter X, with a perpendicular line drawn through it and turned around thus at the top, being the cipher or the symbol of Christ, unquote. That's Lactantius. Eusebius gives a slightly different explanation. He says that sometime before fighting Maxentius, Constantine sees a vision one day around noon of, quote, the trophy of a cross of light in the heavens above the sun and bearing the inscription, conquer by this, unquote. Later that night, Constantine has a dream in which the symbol appears again along with Jesus who instructs Constantine to construct such a banner. When he wakes, according to Eusebius, Constantine obeys, and he makes an army banner in the shape of a cross with the two letters, he, Rho, figured prominently on it. According to Eusebius, Constantine also immediately becomes a Christian. Now, is this a true story? Did these things really happen to Constantine, and that's why he put this symbol on? Well, probably not. At least, not fully as it's been passed down to us. Something like it might have happened. Eusebius notes that his account comes straight from the emperor. Constantine may have had reason to embellish or fabricate part of this story. And some have noted that there is an atmospheric phenomenon called a sun dog, which can produce the image of a cross or, and or a halo in the sky. And I'll show you a picture of these. Kind of cool looking. It's possible that Constantine indeed saw something in the sky, a, an atmospheric phenomenon that was very strange and significant to him. Or maybe he also had a dream and he thought to himself, maybe consciously or maybe he wasn't fully understanding why he was thinking this, he filled in the Christian interpretation. He was aware of Christians in the empire. He, he had this experience that was out of the ordinary and he thought, I'm being directed to put a symbol so that I may have the power of the Christian God. Even if the story that Constantine told isn't completely true, the supposed vision and the subsequent symbol may have indeed helped to inspire his soldiers because despite being outnumbered, Constantine's army is easily victorious. His rival Maxentius actually drowns in the Tiber River trying to flee. Thus, Constantine marches triumphantly into the city of Rome to a celebrating crown, a crowd and he secures his position as the undisputed emperor of the West. So there's still two emperors in the East, but Constantine is the emperor of the West. The next year, Constantine meets with one of his Eastern rivals, a man named Licinius, to create an alliance. The two emperors meet in Milan, Mediolanum at this time, in 313, where they secure their pact, but they also make an agreement, an agreement on a certain matter of religion to be later published throughout the empire as law. That agreement today is known as the Edict of Milan. What did this agreement say? Anybody know? 
This is when, this is a pivotal moment where Christianity is legalized in the Roman Empire. It was an illicit religion before, it was illegal, but now, after this 313 agreement, the two emperors legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire, they forbid any kind of persecution against Christians, and they order the restoration of all property previously confiscated from Christians. And that's, that's a pretty big turning point for, for Christians in the Roman Empire. I mean, they've just come off of this great persecution, and uh, they've endured many waves and local persecutions before that, but now that's all about to change, at least according to this agreement. Christians are no longer allowed to be persecuted in the Roman Empire, and if they are, they are to be compensated. So this is a pretty dramatic change. But the situation is not done from changing, because... After Licinius defeats his rival in the east, it feels like a game of risk or whatever. You, you eliminate certain opponents and then you turn against each other. Well, that's exactly what happens with Constantine and Licinius. Licinius defeats his other rival in the east, so it's just Constantine and Licinius as emperors. But then Licinius allegedly starts persecuting Christians again and even tries to assassinate Constantine, at least according to Constantine. And civil war breaks forth anew in the Roman Empire. Constantine and Licinius fight, and Constantine defeats Licinius in a series of battles until Licinius finally surrenders in 324, saying, I'll surrender if you will spare my life. Constantine agrees. One year later, Constantine accuses Licinius of plotting against him and has his former rival executed. So much for that. With his last rival defeated in 324, no other emperors in the empire, Constantine is the sole ruler of the Roman Empire. And that's just in time to hold a certain important church event in 325. Anybody know what happens in 325? Yeah, the Council of Nicaea. And there's a reason why it happens right after Constantine secures total control of the Roman Empire. We'll come back to that probably in the next lesson. But the Council of Nicaea in 325, right after Constantine secures sole rule. So that's how Constantine came to rule the entire Roman Empire and even bring about toleration for Christians. Constantine would continue to rule until his death in 337, where he'd pass off rule to his sons, and they'd have their own little civil war, but we're not going to get into that. Let's now talk about how Constantine's policies affected Christians. By 325, the Roman Empire is now a very different place for Christians. Not only is Christianity legal in the empire, but the emperor himself, apparently, is a Christian. What? Never in a million years did Christians think that was going to happen. But it did. It was a pretty big deal. Now, don't misunderstand. This is not where Christianity becomes the official religion of the empire, the state religion. Actually, that wouldn't happen until 392 under Emperor Theodosius the Great. He publishes some edicts forbidding pagan worship in the empire, and he upholds Nicene Christianity. So I think 392 is when you could say, the Roman Empire is officially Christian, but even in 325, with Constantine and after Constantine, every Roman emperor is going to be Christian, except Julian the Apostate. And he, he reigned for a short time, 361 to 363. But every Roman Empire emperor is going to be Christian after this point. And because Christianity becomes the emperor's religion, 
even if it's not the official religion of the empire, it increasingly becomes the favored religion of the empire. After all, these emperors want to show themselves to be good Christians. Indeed, Constantine himself embraces several policies to the obvious benefit of Roman Christians. And I'll give you some of those. Constantine gives large monetary donations to Christians for the construction of churches. Remember, Christians didn't really meet in special church buildings before this point. They just modified homes. They had makeshift churches. But Constantine is now giving his own money so that Christians can build churches. Constantine allows for the creation of church courts, and he gives them authority alongside civic courts. Hey, you got a a local problem? People would rather go to their church leaders to resolve it? That's fine. Your decisions are binding. Constantine allows for that. He exempts clergy from certain civic duties, like paying taxes, offering military service, giving certain days of manual labor. He makes the first day of the week an official day of rest throughout the empire. He makes illegal certain pagan practices that were offensive to Christians. The killing of unwanted children via exposure. Crucifixion was made illegal. Branding criminals on the face was made illegal. Didn't want to mar the image of God. Constantine also established a new Christian capital. He didn't rule from Rome, actually a different city. What what city does Constantine make his capital? Constantinople, known today as Istanbul, apparently it wasn't officially called Constantinople during Constantine's time. That literally means Constantine's city, but that's what everybody called it. Oh, that's Constantine's city. He officially called it New Rome, but that name didn't win out. And today, yes, it's known by Istanbul. And you say, how did it change to that name? Kind of an interesting story behind that. Maybe if we have time at the end, I can tell you. So the site Constantine chose as the ground of or as his new capital city, was the ground of an ancient town called Byzantium, a connection to point between Europe and Asia Minor. The site was tactically quite suitable for defense uh, due to its being surrounded by water on three sides. It was in a strategic location and being close to the east but not too far from the west, which was important for defending the barbarian frontier and the frontier against Persia. Also, Constantinople would largely be a new city, which means from the outset it could be Christian. The former capital, Rome, uh, it had centuries of pagan art, culture, and tradition within it. Actually, Rome would continue to be a stronghold of Roman polytheism going into the 5th century. But Constantinople, new Rome, it wouldn't have that long tradition that pagan influence to it. In fact, there would be no pagan temples in the city of Constantinople, which was good news for Christians. Finally, something else that Constantine does and emperors after him is that they call and enforce the decisions of church councils. It really wasn't possible to have an ecumenical, that is an international, all the world, empire-wide church council before Constantine. And why not? Why couldn't they do church councils before that? What did you say, Danny? Well, yeah, it was illegal. So if you got all the Christians, all the most important Christian leaders together in one place, what were you risking? That they'd all be killed. They'd all be arrested and killed. The persecution in the empire made it so that you couldn't get all the leaders together. Maybe you could get a local group together, but you couldn't have an ecumenical council. It was too dangerous. 
but with Constantine and with official toleration of Christianity in the empire, not only does the emperor now have authority to call together various church leaders, he can make sure that whatever they decide becomes the standard of belief and practice throughout the Christian churches. He can enforce their decisions. And this certainly seemed like an excellent way for many Christians to deal with the various schisms and heresies that were afflicting Christianity. You could have an official church council condemn it and then let the emperor enforce that condemnation. He could banish uh, heresy teachers or do other punishments against them. And this was going to become very necessary, according to many Christians in 325, because what heresy was becoming increasingly popular around the year 325. Arianism, I hear some of you saying it. What is Arianism? Christ is a created being. He is not equal to the Father. He is a God. He is not the God. He is less than the Father. Of course, there, that, that belief is still around today in the Jehovah's Witnesses and um, other cults, but it existed at that time, and it was actually gaining a strong foothold in the church. Like, we need something to deal with this. Hey, a church council with a decision enforced by the emperor, that seems like a great way to deal with it. We'll talk more about Arianism next time. So suddenly, it's a great time to be a Christian in the Roman Empire because of Constantine's many pro-Christian policies. Christians, many Christians see Constantine as a savior from God. He is a gift to the church. He is what we've been waiting for. They love Constantine. And after this time, many in Europe will look back to Constantine as the ideal Christian ruler. But are Constantine's pro-Christian policies actually good for the church in the long run? What are the ultimate effects of his policies on the church and on Christianity? Well, the answer is like what I was sharing with you in the beginning. These turn out both to be very helpful and very hurtful. Let me try and explain why. How it's helpful is probably pretty obvious. How were Constantine's effects good for Christians, his policies good for Christians? Well, for one, he stopped persecution. He stopped all persecution. So there is a great amount of saving of Christian life, of limb, and of property. I think if we were in the early church and we were in danger of death or we had loved ones who were dying and an emperor came along and stopped all that, we would be incredibly grateful. He halted persecution. More than that, because Christianity is now an officially tolerated religion, Christians can now minister openly. They can even devote time to write, speak, and minister without fear, which leads to a golden age of theological work in the church, Christian work, spreading of the gospel, numerical growth of the church. This is a great time for the church. Actually, some of church history's most well-known and influential theologians, they come from this period, the 4th century. You've heard names like John Chrysostom, Augustine of Hippo, Jerome, Ambrose of Milan, Athanasius. These are all theologians who are from this period. Constantine enabled this blossoming of Christian work and theology. And along with that, Constantine enabled Christians to safely meet in church-wide councils to deal with important theological questions. These were great effects of Constantine's policies for Christians. But there were also some negative effects, some very important negative effects of Constantine's policies. 
And I've listed four of them for you, and we're going to explore each one of them. Favoring Christianity led, first of all, to the nominalization and the secularization of Christianity. And what do I mean by that? Well, it is basically human nature to respond to incentives, to what we think will be a reward. People pursue things that they think are going to make their lives better, make them happier, give them some reward. And before, when Christianity was an illegal, persecuted religion, people mostly only joined Christianity if they actually believed the message of Christianity. Because you were not gaining anything in the world by becoming a Christian, except persecution and death. <laughs> so you really had to believe you were gaining something that went beyond this world. You gained the Lord Jesus Christ. You gained eternal life with him. But now, under Constantine and on other emperors going forward, being a Christian, and especially being a Christian leader, it could lead to substantial temporal gain for you. I mean, think about it. Constantine, the Christian emperor, who is he going to want to be his closest officials and advisors? Pagan worshippers of Rome's old deities who are very upset with Constantine's policies? No. He's going to want Christians. He's going to want Christians around him in those important posts in government. Or he's going to have a special eye towards Christians. And if you're a Christian leader, you won't have to pay taxes. You won't have to go to war. You can even use the government's own post system, travel and mail system, free of charge because you're a Christian leader. You also enjoy authority over large groups of people, increasingly large groups of people, as more and more people are becoming Christians. So there's no longer much of a downside to becoming a Christian, but there's plenty of upside. So what do you think many people are going to do? They're going to become Christian. Not necessarily because they believe in God, because they've given over their lives to the Lord, but because it's so beneficial for them to do so in a temporal sense. You might think, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, even if they become Christians or go to church for the wrong reasons, at least they'll finally be in church, at least they'll get to hear the gospel, and then they can become saved for real. Is that how it works? It's not often how it works. What usually happens instead? Yeah, Eric said a little leaven leavens the whole lump. What were you saying, Glenda? They compromise, and actually they influence the church towards compromise. When people who are not saved come into the church, especially in large numbers, they bring their worldliness into the church. And rather than being confronted in their worldliness and repenting, they find that their worldliness becomes accommodated. So suddenly you have, a, you have more and more Christians going to church who aren't actually Christian, and they bring their slavery to sin into the church. They, moreover, support leaders who are like them. They support worldly leaders who are going to support their own worldliness. This is just like 2 Timothy 4 says, desiring to have their ears, their ears tickled, they had teachers appointed according to their own desires. So rather than a faithful church purifying this flood of pseudo-Christians, the false brethren actually corrupt and handicap the church. Increasingly, you have nominal Christians in the church who are 
harming the spiritual health of the church and even the church leaders. Of course, not, this doesn't happen to every church, and this doesn't happen right away. Not every church or every church leader becomes unfaithful right away, or even unfaithful at all, but more and more Christian churches in the empire are going to drift from the true faith, partly due to this influx of nominal Christians. These are just Christians in name only, joining the churches and becoming leaders in the churches in the empire. And this is a very negative development for Christianity. At first, maybe they didn't feel it, but increasingly it would become evident. Sinfulness and error are going to creep more and more into Roman Empire Christianity because of the secularization and nominalization. And this will only occur even more once Christianity is the official religion of the empire. I mean, it's going to happen when it's favored, but when the Roman emperor says, you must go to church or else, you've got more nominal, more secular Christians, more not true Christians coming into the church, and that's never good for the church's health. Along these lines, another negative is the paganization of Christian worship. One of the ways that these nominal Christians wished to be accommodated in their new churches was in their worship practices. These half-converts were used to things in their old religion, and they looked for equivalents in the new religion. And this resulted in the establishment and the encouragement of many unbiblical church practices, and some of them, many of them are still around today. These included praying to saints and Mary, praying for the dead, the use of icons in worship, so portraits and even statues of saints or of Christ or of God as, as part of your worship, the wearing of elaborate vestments by clergy, the veneration of Christian relics. There was already a trend towards especially uh, venerating the martyrs. People wanted to remember their example. They'd sometimes even do church services at their gravesite. They would commemorate the day of their death. All of this increased under the Christian empire. And then there's also the burning of incense and candles. Part of this comes straight from pagan worship. Part of this comes from mirroring imperial court ritual. Actually, burning incense before the emperor was common. And wearing these special vestments in imperial settings was common. And now people are bringing that into the church. Now, the reformer John Calvin, in the 1500s, he was actually very well acquainted with church history. He gives an excellent treatment of this paganization of Christian worship in his work, Treatise on Relics. And I want to read a few excerpts of that to you. Listen to John Calvin's explanation as to what happened in the early church under the Christian empire. Here's Calvin. Hero worship is innate to human nature, and it is founded on some of our noblest feelings, gratitude, love, and admiration but which, like all other feelings, when uncontrolled by principle and reason, may easily degenerate into the wildest exaggerations and lead to most dangerous consequences. It was by such an exaggeration of these noble feelings that Roman paganism filled the Olympus with gods and demigods, elevating to this rank men, who would often deserve the grat gratitude of their fellow creatures, by some signal services rendered to the community, or their admiration, by having performed some deeds which required a more than usual degree of mental and physical power. So he's saying these pagan gods, they probably just came from people that got exalted too much, and eventually they became gods. The same cause obtained for the Christian martyrs the gratitude and admiration of their fellow Christians, and finally converted them into a kind of demigods. This was more particularly the case when the church began to be corrupted by her co compromise with paganism during the 4th and 5th centuries. 
which having been baptized without being converted, rapidly introduced to the Christian church not only many of its rites and ceremonies, that is, pagan rites and ceremonies, but even its polytheism, with the difference that the divinities of Greece and Rome were replaced by Christian saints, many of whom received the offices, the same exact offices, of their pagan predecessors. The church, in the beginning, tolerated these abuses as a temporary evil, but was afterwards unable to remove them. And they became so strong, particularly during the prevailing ignorance of the Middle Ages, that the church ended up legalizing, through her decrees, that at which she did nothing but wink at, at first. Describing the transmutation of Roman gods into saints, Calvin mentions some specific examples in one of his footnotes. Thus, St. Anthony of Padua restores, like Mercury, stolen property. St. Hubert, like Diana, is the patron of sportsmen, or hunters. St. Cosmas, like Asclepius, that of physicians, etc. In fact, almost every profession and trade, as well as every place, have their a special patron saint, who, like the tutelary divinity of the pagans, receives particular hours, that is, daily prayers, from his or her protégés. And I think this is absolutely true. And this is an excellent insight from Calvin on a tragic development for the church. Many of the pagan practices were brought into the church, they were Christianized, and they still exist. Where? Roman Catholic Church? Greek Orthodox Church? And someone might say, well, come on, how can you listen to Calvin? He has a clear bias against the Catholic Church because of the time period in which he was writing. I mean, he was in such conflict with them. Of course he's going to say that all their practices came from paganism. Okay, there's a possibility for bias in Calvin. But I think he lays out a convincing case from church history. He actually cites, in a different place, a certain Vigilantius, who was a 5th century church leader who explicitly opposed the combining of pagan practices with church worship. There was somebody in the 5th century who was like, look what's happening, guys. This is not good. We need to stop. What's interesting is other church leaders condemned him for condemning this paganization of Christian worship. And I'll actually show you this. Here's something from Jerome. Jerome is an important church father. We'll talk about him in a later class. But he writes an extremely vitriolic letter against Vigilantius defending unbiblical practices that basically come from paganism with arguments like the following. And I know this is small on the screen, so I'll read it to you. This is Jerome's work against Vigilantius. As to the question of tapers, you know, lighting candles. However, we do not, as you, Vigilantius, in vain misrepresents us, light them in the daytime, but by their solace we would cheer the darkness of the night and watch for the dawn, lest we should be blind like you and sleep in darkness. And if some persons, being ignorant and simple-minded laymen, or at all events religious women, of whom we can truly say, I allow that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge, adopt the practice in, order of the in honor of the martyrs, what harm is thereby done to you? Once upon a time, even the apostles pleaded that the ointment was wasted, but they were rebuked by the voice of the Lord. Christ did not need the ointment, nor do martyrs need the light of tapers. And yet that woman poured out the ointment in honor of Christ, and her heart's devotion was accepted. All those who light these tapers have their reward according to their faith. As the apostle says, let everyone abound in his own meaning. Or in our translation, let each man be convinced in his own mind, Romans 14, 5. 
So do you understand Jerome's argument here? It's not a good one. <laughs> he basically says, it's not our policy. We churchmen who actually understand the Bible theology, it's not our policy to light candles for the dead, to light candles for the martyrs. For truly, martyrs don't need candles lit for them, and they're not benefited by it. But it's okay if someone lights a candle for the martyrs or the saints. Why? It's the thought that counts. Even though it's useless, there's no harm done, and they're trying to show honor to the martyrs and thereby show honor to God. And what's bad about that? Surely God is honored by that worship. Uh, no, that's a very misguided argument. If we are to worship the Lord, it ought to be according to the Scripture. We can't just say, well, they meant well, even though it's not scriptural. Surely God agrees. No, that, that's going to lead to all, all kinds of compromise. And really, this is just an example of exactly what Calvin is talking about. The church tolerates certain kinds of unbiblical practices and worship in the church. These things then take root. They're unable to be removed. And they later become part of church dogma itself. You know, when Em and I had an opportunity to go to Italy uh, a few years ago, we had an uh, Italian guide take us around the city of Pompeii, the ruins of Pompeii. And he was very knowledgeable. He, he had several degrees related to archaeology and history. And at one point, we had gotten to a conversation about Christianity and Roman paganism. And I had suggested to him, you know, from studying church history and studying the Bible, it sure seems like the Roman gods got transformed into the saints of the Roman Catholic Church. And he's like, oh, absolutely. It's so obvious. Like, all the things that were in Roman paganism, they just went right into the Catholic Church. No question. I thought that was very significant for somebody who, who knew um, classical history well and also grew up in Italy, which is a Roman Catholic. And he said, it's, it's quite obvious. That's where these things came from. So this is an effect of making Christianity the favored and later the only religion in the empire. Many unbelievers come into the church, and they bring their pagan worship practices with them. And as the church becomes more worldly, well, more frustrated Christians are going to seek an escape from this worldliness which leads to a third effect, the rise of asceticism. The rise of asceticism. What is asceticism? Yeah, Steve. Right, so severe treatment of the body and self-denial for some spiritual end, usually some spiritual end. Often this shows up in uh, rigorous restrictions to your outer man. So what you eat, um, uh, abstention from sexual relations, maybe you, uh, you sell your possessions, you, you have very few things, you, you wear rough clothes, there are all sorts of ways that people might be ascetic. Now, Christian ascetics had already begun to appear before Constantine and the advent of the Christian Empire. We actually saw this in the form of desert hermits, desert hermits in the third century. And these people would try to live like John the Baptist in the wilderness. That's actually a picture of one of them, St. Simeon the Stylite. He lived on top of a pillar. Now, early Christians often admired these hermits for their self-denial and their desire to escape the corruption of Roman society. Somehow they forgot to pay attention to the part where God says, don't remove yourself from the world. You need to be a witness to the world, but 
these guys seemed really spiritual. A lot of Christians admired them. With the advent of the Christian Roman Empire, though, more and more Christians were drawn to asceticism. Not only because, hey, these guys in the past were pretty spiritual and I want to imitate them, but they wanted to seek an escape from the obvious increasing worldliness in the church, and they were looking for a visible sign of devotion to Jesus. They wanted to prove to themselves and even prove to others that they were real believers. Because the main way that people proved love for Jesus in the past is no longer available. What was the way that people did that? Suffering persecution, even a martyrdom. And that was something that people actually sought out or looked forward to because they say, I want to prove that I really love Jesus. Well, we're in a new era now. Persecution is gone. So how can one prove his devotion to Christ? That he's not like all these nominal half-believers in the church. He's not just one of them. Well, the answer for many was, I'm going to sell my possessions, I'm going to become celibate, and I'm going to become a monk. Or I'm going to embrace some kind of ascetic lifestyle. Now, this was enabled by the changes in society. Now that Christianity is supported by the government and its people, you can actually afford to live this lifestyle because there are other Christians who haven't gone ascetic who can support you financially. They can give you money or they can give you food or whatever. They can enable you to live an ascetic life without dying. So these things kind of came together. Now, you didn't have to actually become a monk, go live in a monastic community, go become a hermit in the desert. There were both forms of monasticism at this time. You didn't have to become a monk or leave society to become uh, ascetic. It actually became common for the church's main leaders at this time, who were known as bishops, to be celibate and to embrace an ascetic lifestyle. In fact, many churches would require that their bishops live this way. And they'd even go to monasteries to find their next pastor, to find their next bishop. They saw these monastic communities as kind of like a spiritual training center for great church leaders. And so even, or, and so they, a lot of these people would go from being monks to being a bishop. Actually, some of the important theologians that I just mentioned to you 10, 15 minutes ago, Jerome, Augustine, Chrysostom, guess what? They were all celibate, and they were all ascetics. Now, is it wrong to embrace an ascetic lifestyle? It's not wrong. Okay, it does come down to motive. You're going to say something, Mark? Okay, wait, wait, wait. Don't, don't read that yet. Okay, we'll come back to that. Come back to that. So, in one sense, it's not wrong, and we could even argue, in some ways, encouraged by the Bible, to live with few comforts and possessions, to remain celibate and unmarried, to eat only modest food. Isn't that not an exhibit of self-control? Paul even commends the life of being a single celibate person. Why? So that you can be undistracted and devoted to Christ. You could say, well, these bishops, these monks, they're just doing what 1 Corinthians 7 says. What's wrong with that? That's a good thing. And sometimes I feel like we in the modern church could use a little dose of asceticism and greater self-denial. Oh, I can't live without my coffee. Don't talk to me yet. Oh, I can't live without Netflix and the TV. You mean I have to suffer, labor, and strive for Christ? I think I need a nap. We could use a little rebuke there. Our true joy is found in Christ not the things of the world, but, as Mark was about to read for us, we also have clear 
prohibitions or warnings in the scripture about asceticism. Because in Colossians 2 and in 1 Timothy 4, Paul warns against those who preach the need for a severe treatment of the body because it doesn't actually do anything in, in putting off fleshly indulgence, as Colossians 2 says. And he says those who forbid marriage or forbid the, forbid the eating of certain foods in 1 Timothy 4, they're not speaking God's truth. God actually created these things to be enjoyed by his people in thankfulness and holy worship. So these are not contradictory principles in the Bible, but they are contrasting principles. Even as we are to live lives of self-denial, even giving up worldly pleasures for the Lord and for service to him, we are to enjoy the good things that God has given us. Those things are true at the same time. But my main point is that Constantine's pro-Christian policies, in an indirect way, they encouraged asceticism in the church monastics, but also people in the church embracing a more ascetic lifestyle. And then finally, one of the most important effects of Constantine's pro-Christian policies was that the role of church and state began to unite in a new way. Role in church and state began to unite in a new way. In some ways, what we see under Constantine is just like what was there in the Roman Empire before, but now it's Christian instead of polytheistic. Because the state religion, no, let me back up and say this. It's not as if religion and government were separated before. No, actually, it was assumed throughout the ancient world, in the classical world, that they're going to be together. You're going to be a government, you're going to be a governor, you're going to be an emperor. Well, you're also the greatest high priest and you've got to offer sacrifices, and you've got to seek the, the favor of the gods. There was no uh, enlightenment concept like, oh, we need to get religion totally separate from government. No. In the ancient world, they were actually intimately linked. That being said, oh, and that's why Christians were persecuted, right? Because they wouldn't sacrifice the state religion. That being said, Roman religion, Roman state religion, did have some degree of tolerance where they say, if you just acknowledge our God and do the sacrifices. You can believe whatever you want. You can do whatever you want outside of that. We don't really care. As long as it's not too crazy. Otherwise, we'll bring the legions. But anyways, there was a certain degree of pluralistic toleration in the Roman Empire. But with Constantine and the emperors after him, the state religion was replaced by Christianity. So church and state, in the Christian sense, were being united for the first time. They were coming together as the first time. Basically, this wasn't exactly true under Constantine, but it would become true under Theodosius and after him. You must, if you're a Roman citizen, you're subject to the Roman Empire, you must embrace Christianity or face the consequences. And not just Christianity. The emperor's brand of Christianity. Rebelling against that brand of Christianity is not just heresy, but because he's the supreme ruler and because church and state are combined, what else is it? What other crime? It's treason. Heresy is also treason. So you want to know why many people in the Middle Ages and also the Reformation were executed for spreading heresy? It's because of this same concept. Really brought together under Constantine, but existing in the centuries afterwards, church and state are one. To rebel against your ruler's religion is to rebel against your ruler, and the penalty, the frequent penalty for such rebellion is death. 
Now, the church initially thought this was a good thing. It's a great thing. They were happy when Theodosius the Great declared Arianism illegal on pain of death at the end of the 4th century. They thought, that's going to put a stop to that heresy. And you know what? It did. But the emperor's sword cuts both ways. What if the emperor believes in something heretical? Earlier in the 4th century, Athanasius, the great defender of Trinitarian orthodoxy against Arianism, he was exiled by Christian Roman emperors on pain of death multiple times. Why? Because Arian church leaders had gained the ears of the emperors, and they convinced the emperors that Arianism was the true faith and Trinitarianism was the heresy. So Athanasius was exiled. This marriage of church and state then, brought about by Constantine but continued up until the 1800s, and even in some places to the present, it would result in a kind of sadly ironic way in the persecution and deaths of many true believers because they were labeled as the heretics and thus traitors to the state. Additionally, the combination of church and state had a reverse effect. It not only increased the religious power of political leaders, but it increased the political power of religious leaders especially if the secular leader in a certain area was weak or absent, people turned to the religious leader for political direction and authority. And where would this become most prominent? Well, in the West, when the Roman Empire begins to crumble and dissolve into different kingdoms, people in the Western half of the Roman Empire are looking to a leader to direct them, even when it comes to state and political affairs. And where do they end up turning? Many of them, to the Bishop of Rome. The Bishop of Rome begins to gather more and more secular authority. And this would bring church and state together in a way that would contribute to the rise of the papacy and all that goes with that into the Middle Ages, into the Reformation period. And of course, that itself would bring about a good deal of persecution of the true church. So this is one of the unattended effects, but a far-reaching one of Constantine's pro-Christian policies, it brought the Christian church into the state, but it also brought the state into the Christian church. So looking at this all together, we can see that in many ways Constantine was great for Christianity, and in many ways he and his policies were bad for Christianity. There were far-reaching effects in both directions. So perhaps we can look at all that and say, well, which is to be preferred? Is it better to have your government persecute you? Force the church to double down on what's really true according to the Bible? Or is it better to have the government promote you and actually embrace a Christian worldview and morality and enforce it in society? I don't know if there's an easy answer to that question. They both have their advantages and disadvantages. Probably and this is not the final word, this is just a thought. Based on one passage of the Bible, probably the ideal situation for Christians is neither. We don't want to be supported, we don't want to be persecuted. And why do I say that? Well, because of Proverbs 30, verses 7 to 9. We have a little prayer there from the writer, and he says, God, please don't make me too prosperous, and don't make me too poor. 
Why? Because if I'm too prosperous, I'll forget you. But if I'm too poor, I might transgress your law and steal and dishonor you. Just give me my portion. Not that we're really in positions of authority that we can affect the influence or the government's view towards Christianity, but that's probably the best for the spiritual health of the church. Anyways, that's just my opinion, just a thought there. Really, because we can't really affect the government in a, in a substantive way too much, we just are to make the most of whatever situation we find ourselves. Understanding that persecution does have good things that it does for the church, but it also brings disadvantages, obvious ones, but so does the government's favor. It brings certain advantages to the church, but it also brings challenges that have to be, um, you have to be aware of and you have to work to mitigate. Our calling as Christians is to be as faithful as we can to the Lord Christ until he comes and brings the perfect government. We're not going to find a perfect situation for Christians under government until the kingdom of Christ comes. Let's see. Okay, we've got a few minutes left. Uh, let, me, let me bring up one question that I didn't know if I would have time to address in the, le- in the lesson. Was Constantine really a Christian? If you know anything about his life, you know that that's a very complicated question. And it's one that's debated by historians, debated by churchmen even to this day. Because on the one hand, he did so very obviously pro-Christian things. He also seemed to confess, at least according to the different church historians, that he was a Christian he uh, prayed to God. He participated in services. But he also continued to style himself in some ways as the pagan ruler or the pagan leader of Rome. He still had the title of Pontifex Maximus for the pagan religion. He still sometimes acted brutally as an emperor. He even killed his own son because the son had apparently engaged in some sort of evil conduct. Uh, there is a suggestion that this was a uh, a political stratagem, his becoming Christian, that it wasn't really because he believed in the Lord, but because he thought that this would uh, bring about something important for him, getting power. On the flip side to that objection, though, is that it's hard to see what the benefit was politically of becoming Christian because Christians were still not a huge part of the empire at that point. He was alienating a lot of sectors of the empire by favoring Christianity or identifying as a Christian. So it's like, why would you do that? That's not helping you at all. Well, maybe he thought that he really would get the power of the Christian God on his side if he did things that pleased that God. Some people have said that Constantine's Christianity was really a long process. And at the very beginning, he wasn't a Christian. He was just somebody who uh, feared the Christian God, wanted that God's favor, and acted in certain ways towards that God that were beneficial for Christians. It is telling that he was not baptized until shortly before his death. But then again, a lot of Christians thought that way about baptism. There was already at this time in the church a certain baptismal regeneration idea that being baptized spiritually cleansed you of all sins that you've committed up to that point. So if that's what you think about baptism, then a lot of Christians delayed their baptism because they're like, I want to get as much cleansing power as possible. Of course, that's not scriptural at all, but this resulted in a lot of people waiting too close to death before they got baptized, and Constantine was one of them. So in the end, was Constantine really a Christian? I don't think we can say for sure. There's good reason to say that he was. There's good reason to say that he wasn't. 
God certainly raised him up for special purposes. He did do some good things for Christians, but in the end, only the Lord really knows where he was at. All right, I think that's all the time we have for today. Next week, oh, I guess I did have a summary slide. Oops, all right. Next time, we're going to backtrack in history, and, and we're going to talk about early heresies in the church. And we're going to find out there were a bunch of heresies, <laughs> even as we're talking about Arianism and in the fourth century. A lot of heresies came up, and we're going to talk about how the church responded to those heresies. Let's close in prayer. Lord, when we think about what you've done, what you did in the fourth century with Constantine and many of his policies, Lord, we can't help but rejoice that you did bring an end to persecution. We don't like to see, we, we hate to see your church, our brothers and sisters, being destroyed, being persecuted for what is right. And yet, Lord, we grieve at how indirectly, unintendedly, these negative things came into the church because of the pro-Christian policies adopted by the government. Well, we're still dealing with some of those problems today. Lord, all we can say in the end is, you know what you're doing. You know what you're doing with various governments. There's benefit from persecution. There's benefits from favor. And there are drawbacks from both sides. All we ask in the end, God, is that you would help us to be faithful, not to be afraid as the government and as society becomes hostile towards us, knowing that it will have a purifying effect on us and it will force us to realize where our true treasure is. But Lord, where things are going well and we receive protection and favor from the government, let us not become complacent. and Let us not then look for our joy, our satisfaction, our security in our temporal circumstances because you can change that in an instant and that's not really where true life or satisfaction is. It is in you and it is in your kingdom to come. Let us cause us, God, as we remember your scripture and we consider the witness of church history, remember where our true city lies. Here we have no lasting city, but we are looking for the city which is to come, which has foundations, whose maker and builder is God. Lord, we are so glad we are going to that city. Make us faithful until then. In Jesus' name, amen.